1: Hello, everybody. This is Garki from the New Books Network. And I'm pleased to have with me today Sarah Bruyett, who is a professor at Carlton University in Canada. She is an author of five books. And most recently, she has published with the Cambridge University Press, Africa, uh, Underdevelopment in African Literature, Emergent Forms of Reading. Um, so Professor Bruyett, I'm pleased to have you with me today. Um, my first question is about the genesis
0: of this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit how this book came to be? Sure. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, the I guess the book has a kind of distant genesis and a more immediate genesis. Um, in the more distant genesis, I think that... Um, As a PhD student, I was uh, in a book history and print culture program at the University of Toronto. So I was doing a PhD in the history of the book. um, And I was also a post-colonialist. And I was interested in Um, the production of books and the history of print and, and books um, globally and particularly in the colonies. And at that time, so this would have been two starting in 2000, there wasn't the amount of research on that topic that there is now. Um, So it, it seemed like a relatively neglected area of study and it was something that I was really fascinated by. Um, And, I ended up in my thesis um, writing a bit about the global publishing industry, but not um, a whole lot. Um, But I was interested in and um, kind of fascinated by UNESCO and its literacy statistics and its measures of sort of the adoption of English in particular. And I was a little bit um, kind of, I guess, unsatisfied with a lot of the work in print culture studies, which had a tendency to sort of prioritize um, the West. And to treat its models of publishing as universal, as sort of the models of publishing and the only way that things could be done. And then simultaneously, in terms of the literacy statistics, to treat um, English as sort of a, a a boon um, as a a gift, um, as a welcome lingua franca. Um, And I was kind of wary of that at the time. Um, And so that's going all the way back to the early 2000s. But then more recently um, at Carleton University, I've been teaching in a new program, which is the Global and International Studies program, which is a bachelor's degree. And there's a required course at the second level in global literatures. And the it, it's a very international program. There are students from all over the world, and there are a lot of students who are from Africa. And I thought, oh, you know, to make it relevant and interesting to their um, broader program, I'm going to teach narratives of development. Um, so we do look at literature uh, about you know, development as a concept and experience and the buildings are on and all that stuff. But we also, um, you know, look at political economic narratives about development. And within that, um, I started thinking about how books themselves are um, not separate from this, that they are a manifestation of and enmeshed in, broader histories of development, and underdevelopment, um, And then I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to kind of think through. So I started, I started um, doing that. Um, and then ultimately, I was asked by the editor of the cluster that I was a part of, um, with my, my small text, because these mini graphs were designed to be um, sort of brief and clustered with others that were on related topics. Um, so Caroline Davis asked me if I was interested in writing one and if I was working on anything relevant, and I was, uh, so I did. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful.
1: Um, I, I do want to ask you. you, you talk about East Africa and South Africa in, in in this book. How is this particular region um, different from, let's see, other anglophone areas in the world? Like, why why do you start with these in in talking about development? Because that's something that's going around the world,
0: all over the world. Yes, that's that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that. I have a completely satisfying answer. In some ways, I think some of these things are the product of happenstance. Um, but I think that um, when I looked at the literature that I could find, like one of the things that ended up happening with um, the book is that I it was it was really shaped by. Um, the pandemic, because my original intention for the book had been to um, travel and actually go to some writers' festivals (laughs) and (laughs) write about um, writers' festivals and visitor economies. And clearly, that didn't end up happening. Um, So I was quite reliant on sort of the body of research that had been done. Um, and I just, I think like over the last five years, there has just been a burgeoning of interest in the study of, um, emerging either digital literatures or sort of print cultures in Africa. So I was depending on that research and a lot of that seemed to be focused on, um, or what is focused on, let's say, primarily uh, Nigeria and and Kenya, and with and some on uh, Uganda, um, and I would say the reasons for that have to do with the reasons why there are more, somewhat more developed print culture book cultures. Um, than there are in other parts of Africa, right? Like there are areas of African countries in Africa that produce basically no books. Um, So these are areas where there are these concentrated pockets of sort of um, things that resemble more advanced economies um, where there is like a developed middle class and there is a leisured readership and there is some disposable income for books and things like that. Um, So... I think that the the nature or the the body of research in these fields is constrained in a way by the archive, which is constrained by the nature of development. Um, so it's where there are the kind of more um, I don't know considerable. I'm not sure what what. Um, where there's an, enough activity for it to be sort of quantifiable in some way that there has tended to be research focus. and so I just kind of had to go where there has been research because I was just you know, completely dependent on work by other scholars um, to make any claims at all. Um, so that's that's kind of that's kind of how how that occurred um and th- thank you uh, i also want to talk about
1: uh, the time period you start uh, with the 70s and and you insist that this is this is the line you want to take because uh, there is i assume a certain kind of shift uh, happening in the way that print cult, print culture is being developed in this region can you talk a little bit about 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 the decade of the 70s
0: yeah i mean i think the general narrative that I was interested in um, sort of tracing um, is d- tends to think about the 1970s as a time when there was maybe a moment of possibility. And this, this kind of connects to um, other work that I've done. So in my, my previous book about UNESCO, um, I look a lot at interest in development and interest in cultural development in the 1970s and the focus on the book as this sort of thing that needed to be developed globally um, almost as a kind of right. And um, I think there was a sense that there was a lot of energy and activity put into um, state-based supports for development of book cultures Um, in the 1970s. But then, of course, after the 1970s, with all of the phenomena that tend to be associated with neoliberalism, but that I would, you know, perhaps um, associate with just economic turbulence, um, or contraction, and with um, sort of um, the withdrawal of state-based supports for things like um, culture and the arts, the narrative and the sense of possibility, I think, turns. And there's a way in which um, all of the conditions that were identified in the 1970s as being sort of um, inhibiting the development of um, large-scale book production and leisured Readership, and I'm, you know, eager to emphasize that I, I don't want to treat those things as inherent goods, as they're sometimes treated, but that the conditions that were in place that inhibited those things are still in place in many cases, and in fact, even um, exacerbated. Um, and that, but at the same time, so that's sort of for things that inhibit the development of a kind of like um, leisure disposition toward the book that's, um, essential to cultivation of a sort of literary habitus. And this is not unique to Africa. This is a global phenomenon that I'm more interested in. Um, but at the same time, there is since the 1970s, a tremendous influx of people into cities looking for work. Um, and, Uh, tremendous growth in urban born populations and a decline of the rural population. And with that, a picking up of um, English language by necessity. So um, I was sort of interested in looking at the adoption of English as a manifestation of material need, and then what new forms of kind of reading culture, more popular, not necessarily literary reading culture, um, arise in response to that emerging readership um, or potential, potential readership. And then also how the kind of like more um, official, say, high literary um, forms of publication try to capture <laughs> that emerging readership um, and the fears they have about it, um, especially about its, you know, lack of interest in participating in the legal book trades by buying expensive um, paperbound um, or perfect copies of books at official licensed booksellers, that that sort of thing. So that was the kind of dynamic that I was interested in, and I I don't think that's um, completely unique. Um, since in the period since the 1970s, but I do think it's a dynamic that's more evident now, um, for all of those those reasons. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're you're right. Um, I would want to go back to the the the, to, uh, the title of your book uh, when one reads African literature, one, one tends to, th- to think of the canons of uh, of African literature or be that may as Canadian literature or English literature, but you place equal emphasis on, on, on textbooks or on books that are uh, written specifically for the learners of the language or on official text. Um, why do you think they're valuable for understanding the print culture in contemporary or... Post-colonial Africa.
0: Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, That's such a good question. Um, I think that, um, in part, I mean, there's so many ways to answer this. I think, in part, um, it wouldn't really even be possible to understand the nature of the book industries without looking at all of what is produced and i think the main thing um that people who have you know tracked like the or who who are really carefully studying all of the um book industries in africa over decades um will say is that the it's been completely dependent on textbook production or, you know, state contracts for official materials. Um, and so just having that sense, like, or or what the, the print industry has been devoted to and reliant on, I think is really important and also kind of gives a sense of um, the, the, I guess, ways of distinguishing between the elite sphere of kind of, Um, production of African literature for global audiences, and then the more local activity of actual publishers. And again, like, I wouldn't, I don't want to suggest this is unique to the African situation. um, But it is an important part of the history of of print. Um, And I think too, like, if you look at book Culture or or print industries as social forms. You know, it. This really reflects um, on the ground reality that it's in when people are in school. That's often the only um time you know that they encounter that or that they participate in the activity of reading for leisure um and then often you know the lament is oh when people leave school they don't really they don't keep up with reading (laughs) you know and it's because it's very uh expensive and not necessarily convenient to acquire texts uh, and because you don't have that like state backing for production of these these works. And then of course, like even when people are in school, there aren't enough texts available and people struggle to get like supplementary reading material so that they can practice their new skills. Um, But yeah, I think like just understanding the general situation for the reader is important. Um, You know, I also just like, I didn't want to focus just on um, high art, like African literature, um, because I mean so many of the texts in the canon are, and so so much of that is, as, you know, I point out, like Western facing, you know, and I, I say that it's um, really got past the problem of the absent reader. And I think that's really important and sort of constitutive of the field. I, I even though I don't consider myself like an expert in, in African literature, it seems to me those debates about the extent to which, Um, African literature is Western-facing or the extent to which it's, you know, self-exoticizing or self-anthropologizing, they're sort of inescapable for people who are participating within the field. Um, So even if they, you know, discount the validity of those kinds of claims, it's there, right? Like in the consciousness and in the discussion, in the debate all the time. Um, And I think one way to understand that and to situate that and contextualize it is to look at why publishing in Africa is underdeveloped, quote unquote, I sort of prefer to say undercapitalized, um, but you know what, why that is and why there is this need to rely on other readers who don't necessarily live in Africa. Um, and also it just seemed like there's already so much scholarship on um. That topic and there's sort of less scholarship on more emergent sort of demotic, popular forms, um, and I'm kind of just as interested in both, so I thought why not try to do a little bit <laughs> of of both.
1: Yes, uh, you're right, and there's so much to unpack there, but. Uh, I would go that one by one. Um, uh, I would first want to ask you, in your research, because it's East Africa, um, I can't help but think of the African, and if in Mozambique, the Portuguese sources. Do you, uh, in your research, do you come across if it's the same in the other colonial languages in Africa? Or do you think this is especially because of English? Because in English, we have U.S. and Canada, two big countries that, are also providing lots of funds uh, in this region.
0: I, I'm sorry to say, like I feel like I should ask you. You know, <laughs> I I don't really feel equipped to answer that. Um, the only the thing that I've I've come across in my research is um, work that talks about African language languages and that the barriers that they face are even greater. Um, but like in terms of cultivating a kind of book culture, if, if that's the aim, um, but in terms of the other, I mean, I, I, I speculate that there are some similar dynamics at work, um, but I wouldn't want to say that absolutely. Um, without doing more research in, on those topics. But I hope you write another book on that topic. Yeah, I don't think I have the language confidence. You know, it's one of those things like 10 people should write it or 20 people or, you know, a hundred people. Um, yeah. It's such a massive topic. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Now mm-hmm. I, do want to come about
1: uh, the new modes of reading that you have in the book called Demotic Reading Cultures. And I, I searched and searched about this on the internet. I was absolutely fascinated by the term you have used, Demotic. Can you tell us why you choose that term and what you mean by that in this context?
0: Sure. Um, well, I I tried to kind of like um and i don't know how successfully but like cluster different terminology um around these two poles and i was i was trying to um suggest that the like the most common paradigm let's call it for study of um print culture pits It's based on Pierre Bourdieu, and it it does that thing with the high art elite sphere and the more popular mass sphere um, and says that they're in this constant conversation. Um, And I was trying to suggest that um, in study of this kind of print culture, um, let's say African urban print culture, or we could say um, book cultures in areas of so-called underdevelopment. There is a different kind of dynamic. That's like um, the state, not 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 African state. <laughs> um, they let's say backed by global governance or by NGOs or by foundations, and um, officially sanctioned, licensed high art sort of developmental. I called it developmentalist. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this sort of more popular, um, demotic and I called it some other things like entrepreneurial or hustle culture or more interested in just, um, you know, uh, survival in the moment rather than expansion and with an eye to this, this kind of, um, development. And I, you, the I, I think that there's, what's interesting about the more popular demotic sphere um, is the way in which, like, first of all, that's probably where inculcation of English literacy is happening rather than in the other sphere. Um, and it's also, um, I think where a lot of the more, like, interesting and dynamic activity in cultivation of of um, reading materials is happening. And by that, I'm just mainly thinking about reading on smartphones, you know, which I, I didn't talk about um, – too extensively, um, in the book because, you know, I, I hadn't done like a ton of research. I've actually, you know, done more since I'm still working on this topic, especially looking at Okada books, but, um, and the, the other things that I find interesting about what's going on over there, um, in the demonic sphere is the, um, in piracy, you know, I'm just really interested in, in piracy and attempts to sort of, um, and, attempts to justify cracking down on, on it and attempts to, to crack down on it. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, I, am not sure I answered your question. (laughs) I don't, I don't know if I had a particularly like long think about use of the term demotic, but I think I, I just meant it as a kind of a signal or signifier of sort of, um, non-elite activity or, um, more like, um, conversational and less so-called elevated. Um, a lot of the terminology that's used to describe this kind of reading material, I find really, um, problematic so that it was also a way of avoiding that. So some like, um, when you look at NGOs, like even the one that I look at in the study, the Canadian organization for development through education, they will refer to readers, um, they will re- refer to literature for learning readers um, as sort of like, you know, uh, as low level, <laughs> things like that. They'll use words like low or, you know, and I, I was trying to avoid uh, doing that, certainly, um, because that's just not how I think about it. Um, and I also think like what's interesting about that, that sphere of production is how much effort there is to kind of control what happens in it um, on the part of the sort of more official, like licensed producers of, of book cultures. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you completely answered the question. Um, um
1: I also want to come back, uh, to the topic of, of foreign publications that you have referred, uh, to or tr- twice or thrice now. Um, when one ordinary thinks of um, foreign publications in the global South, one thing associates with more uh, monetary sources, uh, editorial resources, opportunities for the authors, but you paint a not so rosy picture uh, of uh, the foreign publications in Africa. Um,
0: why is that? Uh, do you mean um, like, overseas things that were produced overseas circulating in africa um you you know uh the
1: the the fact that uh foreign public it's almost as if if an african author is to be taken seriously it's is to have one book or or more than that Published uh, in a foreign uh, in a foreign press or teaching in, in in a foreign university. How this in global south. I mean, uh, I'm Indian, and this we see to some extent in India too. That uh, if if you are uh, let's just say a literary writer, you you almost would have to be published in UK or US or or, or something like that. Uh, why do you think this this has happened? um in in the global South I mean this this is intimately linked to the 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 topic of development that you you have talked about
0: yeah that's um such a good question again I feel like there are a lot of ways you can answer this I mean it's not like I I don't want to blame the writers do you know what I mean I, I don't mean to be um judging their choices so much as understanding the conditions in which they work. I think that's my training as a cultural materialist is to sort of look at the conditions of production of culture. Um, And I think there's a practical reason why if you um, grow up in Nigeria and you aspire to be a successful writer, you would aspire to be successful with say a north american or european market Um, and that's just the practical material reason that that's the only way you're going to be able to sustain a career as a writer Um, it would be tremendously difficult to do that otherwise it's different perhaps if you want to be someone who has another career like i talk about um the author of finding columbia um which is you know for early readers. And um, that someone who says, like, I'm happy to be a banker, and I'm going to write books on the side, I don't need to make publishing my career. Um, but this is also someone who's not like, um, aspiring to uh, esteemed position within the literary field. Um, so part of it is that recognition of the practical necessity of that, which has to do, of course, with under capitalization of the local industries, um, but these, you know, these dynamics also reflect and and I think perpetuate um, broader phenomena and problems. Um, part of this, I think, you know, could go back. And I I'm, I I was just thinking about this this morning about the impact that Gari Viswanathan's book. Um, Maps of Conquest had on me (laughs) as someone studying English literature as an undergraduate and then seeing like what the establishment of the authority of English um, literary expression, how that was functioning in the British colonies. And I do think that part of what's going on here is just the ongoing maintenance of a kind of global Uh, imbalanced, uneven system of esteem and prestige, where prestige is to an extent, not exclusively, but still seen to kind of like emerge from and be bestowed upon from, um, you know, the former colonial powers um, and now the centers of the so-called developed economies. Um, And so that dynamic um, is... You know it's ongoing and it's maintained, um, and I think it's important to point that out. Um, so that's 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 part of the story as well. And I think you know there, it's possible that there's that shifting somewhat, um, but I think it's it's still pretty clear um, that 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 maintains that remains the case. And I think writers themselves often complain about this and also refract. It and reflect upon it or mediate it, if you will, in their work, um, in how they reflect upon their experience of being dependent on this kind of system of acclaim in order to establish their reputations.
1: Yes, yes, you're absolutely uh, right. Um, how do you think then uh, these uh, demotic um, modes of reading can can change this this dynamic? Do Do you think there is there, there can be a change or do you think um, it, it that demotic modes of reading will have their own path and they run parallel to each other?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. I'm not really good at speculating mm-hmm. um, about future things, but um, I feel like it would be interesting actually to look or compare the example um, of popular reading materials in English in India <laughs> um, where you know, there there has been a kind of like um, or there is there is now a, a broad kind of popular marketplace for um, English language like mass, Text, popular texts um, but my understanding is that the audience for that is still um, kind of delimited by disposable income. Um, and you know I'm not I'm not totally sure so that's not really a satisfying answer. Um, I think probably um, my if I had to predict what will happen, I think, it will continue along the, the same track that it is and perhaps um, reflect a bit more or, or what's going on even in North America. The, the two will kind of um, develop in ways that are somewhat parallel, you know? So I think that the, it will be increasingly difficult for the more elite literary sphere to sustain itself based on market sales, um, and it will be more dependent or continue to be dependent on private foundation funding. And I'm saying that just because I feel like that's what's going on all over the place, um, that there is a diminishing um, role for an interest in cultivation of like bourgeois literary dispositions for all kinds of fascinating reasons um, that are fundamentally economic. And then probably um, the mass popular sphere will um, cultivate its own forms of uh, authority and its own forms of um, prizing and esteem, you know, Um, and will like something like a prize for the best, flash fiction, you know, or uh, that will be funded by a smartphone app, you know, I, I think that's the kind of the thing that that's the kind of thing that's that's likely continue. So there will be more, um, if you will, <laughs> private sector like smartphone backed by Google, um, skimming off the top of um, informal sector literary activity like self-publishing and uploading your words of wisdom to <laughs> to the Okada Books app, um, and and yeah, so that's kind of what I what I would what I would anticipate. Okay. Um, happening we can we can talk again in five years and <laughs>
1: see how I, I many think we should
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah
1: um so uh in the end i would also like to take an opportunity to ask you about your present projects uh what should we look forward to reading from you
0: oh gosh um i should have prepared <laughs> for this didn't anticipate this question um So I'm writing about, or I have been writing about um, self-publishing platforms and apps. So I have been writing about Wattpad and Okada Books and kind of comparing them a bit. Um, And I'm thinking about the models of creativity that they cultivate, so the Forms of of writing and of thinking of yourself as an author that they kind of tap into and cultivate, um, and I'm also writing about social media and the kind of social mediaization of the publishing industry and the way that writers who aspire to some kind of success using these apps um, have to do all kinds of behind the scenes work. It's very time consuming um, and very poorly paid if paid at all um, to cultivate their fan base. Um, and then just looking at the kind of like economic models of how these apps kind of, um, you know, they elicit a kind of loyalty and a kind of, you um, constancy of upload and engagement and benefit from that and, um, make money. Uh, and not much of that is authors don't see much of that money. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, so just the sort of economic model of these, these smartphone, um, apps and platforms and the kinds of, of writing that's, that's being done on those. So that's, that's basically what I've been up to.
1: That sounds very interesting. I hope I get to talk to you again about your new book. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, all the best for your project.
0: Thank you.